Hey, Kansas City. Welcome to episode 30 of the Made in KC podcast. We are now in day 30 of the stay-at-home order. I'm Tyler Enders. I'm Keith Bradley. And I'm Thomas McIntyre. Today, we'll be celebrating the 50th annual Earth Day by looking at what's been accomplished, the challenges that lie ahead, and how this unique time provides an interesting look at Mother Earth. Happy Earth Day, guys. Happy Earth Day. I think it just started raining over here in my neighborhood, which seems oddly appropriate for Earth Day. I guess any sort of weather activity would be appropriate for Earth Day, but it all counts. something nice. Something nice about a gentle rain right now. Yeah, rain rain feels more like weather activity where sunshine and no rain feels like an absence of weather activity, although that's not the case. So I agree with you. It feels it feels very fitting for a rainy Earth Day. Well, as we said in the intro, today marks the 50th anniversary of Earth Day, so we thought we'd start by acknowledging why Earth Day is so important. Yep, and I'm going to read the following, which comes directly from EarthDay.org. The first Earth Day in 1970 mobilized millions of Americans for the protection of the planet. On April 22, 1970, 20 million Americans, which is 10% of the U.S. population at the time, took the streets, college campuses, and hundreds of cities to protest environmental ignorance and demand a new way forward for our planet. The first Earth Day is credited with launching the modern environmental movement and is now recognized as the planet's largest civic event. Earth Day led to passage of landmark environmental laws in the United States, including the Clean Air, Clean Water, and Endangered Species Acts. Pretty remarkable for a grassroots movement. I did not realize that it had led to all those things. And I saw that on the list it also included helping us get rid of DDT, asbestos, among many other chemicals and pesticides that, I don't know, it might have taken decades longer to, to rid us of. It is interesting. I'm wondering, curious as the timeline, 1970 being the year, I wonder what that looked like either in an earlier decade or a later decade, or if, if there was something integral about that time in the American history and a certain cultural ties that made it the impact that it had. But glad it occurred either way. Yeah, you hear that Earth Day started in 1970. And my first thought is not, oh, I bet it had really profound impact on global society. And then you read all the things that it's helped accomplish. And it's pretty impressive. Yeah. And what, what sense has gotten 20 million people together in our country? I can't think of anything right now off the top of my head. Not, not in that kind of concentration or focus, for sure. So suffice it to say that Earth Day has been majorly successful. Those landmark acts alone have made a massive impact on the quality of our air and water and the preservation of species, etc. But, of course, as we are all too well aware, we continually face new threats. And aside from the major ones, which would be deforestation, habitat destruction, drilling and mining, pesticides, pollution, of course, the major threat that we face today is climate change. Before we dive into some of the positive changes that we've seen during this forced human hibernation, as I wrote out the intro to the episode, I wanted to look into the origin of the term Mother Earth. And not surprisingly, it's pretty interesting, pretty cool. So in terms of the English language, it dates back to the 13th century and was popularized in the Middle Ages. It comes from the Latin natura, meaning birth or character, with the idea that the earth nurtures people and provides life and sustenance. But what's cool about it is that you see this across other cultures as well. And so simultaneously in Native American cultures, in Southeast Asian cultures, you saw other personification of the earth or universe as mother. And I, I just thought that was an interesting tidbit. and It helps a little bit to think about the true life-giving nature of our planet. Yeah, it's interesting because I never even questioned the origin just because it seems so fitting. And so 
natural, no pun intended there, but it's, yeah, Mother <laughs> Earth is just, it is the ultimate mother. And, uh, yeah, it's, it is an interesting looking into the origins of it. And I like that personification really makes you think about things differently and it makes you, um, it personalizes it and it makes it more emotional. And I think that that's like, that's exactly what we need with climate change. Not to derail us too much before we start, but it makes me think about other common cultural personifications. The first thing that comes to mind is would kind of be the counterpart to mother, which is father and our common saying of father time and how that relates to mother earth. I don't know, but father time, mother earth, it seems like a match made in heaven. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I think people can like directly relate to stories of their parents and the uh, connotations of Father Time and Mother Earth, and yeah, it paints it paints a nice picture. Oh. <laughs> a lot of broad strokes and probably gender stereotypes, and even in both those, but interesting nonetheless, I guess. <laughs> is, this, is this the 420 episode or the 422 episode today, guys? <laughs> um, well, as as is common in our show to get derailed, but also to look for silver linings during the the pandemic, it's really interesting that. Earth Day and the 50th anniversary of Earth Day has fallen during this time. It seems as if Mother Earth is providing us with much more than a silver lining during this time, but actually a really bright spot during this kind of dark and troubling time for us. Um, so we're going to look at some of those some of those aspects today in the podcast. Well, reports abound of lower air pollution and a resurgence of wildlife during this human global shutdown. How can we make this temporary reprieve last longer? How do we use the following inspiring stories to promote long-lasting change for our planet? It's no secret as we mentioned earlier, that our planet is trending in the wrong direction. However, throughout this pandemic, as people stay at home, factories slow and shut down, signs of hope and optimism have emerged. Let's look at some of those things that are happening now. Uh, Some of the most interesting things that I think we've all kind of read about is what is happening in the animal kingdom right now. Uh, Thomas, you want to share one of those stories? Uh, Thanks, Keith. I will start things off with everyone's favorite, the sea turtles. A recent CNN report found that sea turtles on the Thailand beaches are at their largest numbers in nearly two decades due to lockdowns. And it's interesting to think about how a lot of these changes or positive things we're going to talk about are temporary because of the pause that we're on right now. But what's happening now will have long-term effects. For example, the regeneration of animals during this period of time will have multiplying effects going forward for years to come, even if we take a step back to our old ways. And so we expect to see exactly that with the sea turtles. This period of time, positive effects will allow them to regenerate, increasing their population, and then hopefully that'll multiply for years to come. I think what's also interesting, Thomas, is uh, you've actually mentioned this a couple of times on the podcast about just sort of the, the season that this pandemic is happening, primarily focused on kind of our country and the, the season of life that we're in in terms of holidays, in terms of it being spring and weather being nice. The timing of this for, I think, the animal kingdom is is fairly significant because there is a lot of that reproduction or reproduction cycles happening right now that you mentioned will will have significant impacts. Probably not true for every animal or every part of the globe, but certainly true for a lot of a lot of animals. If I remember my elementary school biology. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Another story, and there are, there are dozens of these out there that can't help but bring a smile to my face. But this one particularly focuses on uh, Yosemite National Park where wildlife is out in record force, particularly with the bear population. And it's not that they're seeing a a massive reproduction of bears right now, but bears are more free to roam about the national park. So apparently there are a group of folks who, because of where they actually live or because they work for the national park, their shelter in place order, their stay-at-home order is Yosemite. And so they've been able to witness animals coming out in numbers they've never, never seen before because they're able to roam free. They're not bothered by visitors trying to 
feed them food that should they shouldn't be fed. They're not bothered by cars on the road or people trying to take pictures of them. They are just out and about and absolutely loving life right now. If you're able to click on one of these articles and watch a video, it is fascinating. And the juxtaposition to that is I've seen all these pictures of animals in zoos and people saying, tired of being locked up, you know, like so are these animals. And it's equally heartwarming and sad to see these animals so happy roaming in their natural habitat because we've deprived them of that for so long. Yeah, and there's also some of my favorite, Keith, you mentioned the videos, the examples to watch are, are in these urban settings uh, where, for example, there's goats, the goats are taking over. There's a small Welsh town and it's reported a large increase in goats coming down from the hills and wandering the streets and likely entertaining those who are locked inside their homes. I also saw examples of coyotes in Chicago, uh, you name it, different foxes and moose in mountain towns, although that always happens, but in higher numbers. And it's, uh, yeah, it's their land. So it's, it's cool to see them use it. I hope that as we go back, to our old ways. It doesn't endanger them, but for the moment we'll focus on the good and, and glad that they're enjoying the terrain. And I just can't help think of all the vacations we've taken to Colorado and the mountains. And we just spend every second of every day looking for that wild animal to, to come out that bear and that moose. And I imagine they're much more easy to come by these days, but alas, we are, we're sheltering in place. And so <laughs> we'll have to wait for another day. Yeah. Now, while this is a lot of good news for the animal kingdom walking around. There is a there's a little bit of a downside that is worth mentioning with the lack of humans roaming the earth, if you will. So the safari industry, primarily based in Africa, is a $12.4 billion industry. And right now, as, as you can imagine, has completely dried up. So no safaris, no one's booking any tours, no one's going out in South Africa or Kenya or other parts of, of Africa to explore wildlife there and observe wildlife there. So that is leading to the risk of poachers being able to roam free in a way they haven't been able to do for a lot of times when uh, someone purchases a safari to go on a trip, you know, a good, a good chunk of that money not only goes to the safari company, but a good portion also goes to protecting that wildlife as well as preventing poaching from happening. And so right now poaching in Africa is a, is a significant risk during this pandemic is no one's there to keep extra eyes on them and prevent them from doing that. Yeah, moving on, I guess the good news on the environment isn't just associated with the animal kingdom. Most notably, the emissions and air pollution are down. The skies are clear, air is more pure, and many, many people are breathing more easily than they have in just a few decades. Air pollution is down 46% in Paris and down 26% in LA, just to name a few places. And one of the coolest examples I've seen of this, some areas of India are seeing the Himalayan mountains for the first time. Wow. I didn't. I can't quote it exactly on how long, so I don't want to misquote it. But I think for some people, first time ever. And there's really cool pictures of this, this like skyline of white-capped mountains off in the distance that no one's ever seen from these spaces before because of air pollution, and that's down now. And it's just a really beautiful reminder of our negative impact, unfortunately. That's awesome. That would be really, really profound and really sad to see for the first time and realize what you're missing the rest of your life and what you will inevitably be missing again in just. Well, a few I'd months. imagine. Yeah, I had I had uh, one of my good friends, Reed Cope, was in Portland, Oregon for a long time, and I'd visited him a bunch, and it's very rainy and foggy there often, and on the few days where it's not, you can see Mount Hood, and it's just like this amazing, awesome way to start your day is this rare sight of Mount Hood, and it's more just weather-based and pollution-based, and I remember being so hopeful that the next day was going to be clear while I was there that I like wish I could do something about it, and I think it's going to be really motivating for those mm-hmm. people be able to have these sites and these scenes and not want them to go away now. So hopefully it does spark some action. Yeah. 
Yeah, and uh, the reduction in air pollution is significant for a lot of reasons. Um, I grew up in Southern California, and it was very common for us to have what they called smog days. And these would be days where the air pollution was so bad, typically in late spring, early summer. But the air pollution was so bad that if we were at school, we couldn't go outside. And that if we were outside, we were told to you know not, not go outside for too long. And I remember I'd always love to be outside as a kid. And you'd feel it when you breathe in. You'd feel pain in your chest from breathing too much of bad air on those smog days. Just something I thought of as we were walking through that. I haven't thought about those days in a long time, but they'd be all over the news. Schools would keep you inside and just for, for air pollution, it was a combination of that and the weather. But furthermore, continuing on, the, the link between CO2 emissions and climate change is significant. Many countries have taken steps to reduce CO2 emissions in an effort to slow down climate change. So a lot of countries are doing a lot of good things already. But what we've seen in this pandemic is such a, a dramatic and quick reduction of those. And so while potentially this is only short term, it seems to be much needed break for air quality. Second, we know that poor air quality leads to poor quality of life and carries significant health risks. Recently, Stanford University researcher Marshall Burke estimates that in China alone, dwindling harmful emissions have saved the lives of 4,000 kids under the age of five and 70,000 adults over the age of 70. Those age ranges being most, yeah, most at risk for being harmed by air pollution. It's just incredible to think about those numbers in just one part of the world. Also, more directly related to the pandemic and how COVID-19 works, we know that it affects the lungs, kind of gets inside the lungs and makes it harder for individuals to breathe. So one study shows that an estimated 80% of all COVID-19 deaths across four countries have occurred in the most polluted areas of those countries. And so our long history of air pollution has simply made this pandemic worse, making it harder for individuals to recover. And the U.S. has reported that nearly half of our population breathes in polluted air on a regular basis. So this much-needed break that we're seeing is significant for a lot, a lot of reasons that are really interesting to look at in the study right now. I feel as though climate change is talked about so much that sometimes we forget the basics of it. I think that most people share the understanding that the atmosphere and therefore our climate is becoming more volatile as it warms. And so we know that as hotter summers, colder winters, but it can also just mean unpredictability. So record droughts leading to record wildfires, record rains leading to record flooding. But I want to get back to why this happens. So I want to go back to the core concept of the greenhouse gas effect and the danger of it in that it is a positive feedback loop, meaning that it inherently builds upon itself. So first, what is a positive feedback loop? The best example I can think of is through explaining it by another analogy, the snowball effect. When you first start building a snowball, it's slow going, you're adding small piece to small piece, but once it's too big to hold, you set it down, you start pushing it around on the ground, and it's able to gather more and more snow because the size of your snowball has gotten a lot bigger. You have more surface area. And so your last push is way more impactful than your push two minutes ago. And that push is way more impactful than your push five minutes ago. So positive feedback loops create these compounding returns and they accelerate your response. Back to the greenhouse effect. Perhaps the most famous climate feedback loop is that of melting ice. And it does a really good job of explaining just how scared we should all be. For the sake of my fifth grade science explanation, when the sun comes through the atmosphere and hits the earth, some of the light is absorbed and some is reflected back. Therefore, some of the heat is absorbed and some of the heat is reflected back. The sun can hit three different surfaces on our planet. Land, water, as in the liquid water in the form of oceans and lakes, 
or it can hit ice, solid water, in the form of glaciers. Ice is remarkably good at reflecting sunlight and therefore remarkably good at reflecting heat. How good? Ice reflects about 80 to 90% of sunlight, meaning it absorbs only 10 to 20% as heat. But open water, meaning the ocean right next to it, only reflects 6 to 10% of the sunlight, meaning that 90 to 94% of that sunlight is absorbed into the oceans and that that heat is captured. So back to the positive feedback loop, back to the snowball effect. As our planet gets warmer, glaciers melt. As the glaciers melt, there's less ice to reflect the energy of the sun, and there's more water to absorb that energy. And this isn't a one-for-one trade, remember? This is giving up ice, which reflects 80 to 90% of the sun's energy for water, but when you give up the ice, you have water instead, which is absorbing 90% of the energy. So it's like a one-for-nine trade. So then as the Earth absorbs more heat, we have more water that evaporates from the ocean, as warmer air can hold more water. Back to the greenhouse gases. Little known fact, the most common greenhouse gas is water vapor. And just as the sun can penetrate the glass ceiling of a literal garden greenhouse, but then that glass ceiling can still retain the heat, so too can water vapor and other greenhouse gases let the sun's heat in through our atmosphere, but then trap it. So we have more water vapor in the air due to our warmer climate, and so our atmosphere begins to trap more heat. More heat means we melt more glaciers. More melting glaciers means the 9 to 1 trade-off with water, and this is our dangerously precipitous positive feedback loop. It gets scary really, really fast. Take that, Science Friday. (laughs) (laughs) So what do we do about it? What power do we have as individuals? Globally, the largest contributors, the largest sectors to greenhouse gas emissions are electricity slash energy slash heating, transportation, agriculture, and then manufacturing I call it more just like manufacturing slash business. So generally speaking, all of these four categories are equally significant. And generally speaking, as consumers, our actions have a direct impact on all of these sectors, except for manufacturing, maybe, although I would argue that your purchasing decisions absolutely have a ripple effect. So easy question, which country in the entire world is number one at emitting the most greenhouse gases per year per person? Of course, it's the United States. Reframed, however... That means that we are better poised as an individual to reduce global greenhouse gas emissions than anyone else is on Earth. So I want to take a quick step back to how the U.S. climbed that number one spot. Between 1900 and 1950, as cars came online, as manufacturing continued to grow in the U.S., our global carbon emissions didn't really increase that much. They went from about 1 trillion metric tons of carbon to about 1.5 trillion metric tons. That's a 50% increase over about 50 years. But then when you look at 1950 to 2014, it went from 1.5 trillion to over 10 trillion. So how did we go from increasing 50% over a 50-year period to increasing 670% over a 70-year period? That's the snowball effect. That's the danger of it. That's how it picks up speed. That's the feedback loop. That's where things build upon themselves and you get this cumulative compounding growth. And so as we race to try to slow this increase, it's hard to know where to focus your time and energy when the whole world seems to be on fire and time's running out. But now we have this super unique once in a lifetime opportunity. We have this forced human hibernation that has required us to slow down. And so now we need to gather ourselves and make sure that we don't just rush back to business as usual. We need to rethink 
So before we rush to reopen, before we get factories back online, we need to rethink our path forward. We need to rethink our transportation. There have been talks about another cash for clunkers program, pulling heavily polluting cars off the roads, reducing greenhouse gas emissions in an effort to simultaneously stimulate our economy to pull us out of this recession with the purchase of electric, hybrid, and other more efficient cars. And I guess technically we're not in a recession yet. So if there were ever a time to slow down and figure out what comes next, I think it's now. Yeah, and I'll jump in there, Tyler. Thanks for that summary. It is it is a good reminder to understand what green gas emissions are, what they're doing, and how we're trending, because it is, it is scary. And for me, the coronavirus, we talk about seeing positives, and outside of the human love for one another nature that's come out of this and us leaning on each other and us supporting one another, my favorite part and most positive thing about all this is that we now have pretty substantial evidence in front of us that us taking action, even in this case we didn't do it intentionally, has an impact on our planet. I think there's been so much discussion about whether, as crazy as it is, whether global warming or climate change is an actual thing or not, and if we're impacting the environment and all those things, and now we're able to step back and see these changes happening, and I think it should have a really positive impact on any steps we are taking and taking them further. Yeah, it should be really hard after this to be a climate science denier. I would I would hope so, yes. And the sad part is, and I saw this on, I think it was the Today Show, so take take it as you will, but it was a scientist speaking, and it was projected that our impact, our reduction in greenhouse gases this year of 2020, they're projecting it'll be a 5% reduction, which will be the first time we've seen a reduction in a very long time. Unfortunately, the same scientist was projecting that for us to correct our problems and put us on a path for not ruining our planet, our reduction has to be 8% each year. And so even with this period of time of extreme measures being taken, we might still not hit that goal. And and that kind of is a wake-up call to me of what how severe our steps need to be in order to actually have an impact that's going to make a difference. And so I think the hardest part in making those changes is the extreme habit change that we have to do. That part now has been forced. We've made extreme habit changes, and now we've seen the impacts of it. And so now to Tyler's point, and Keith, you mentioned this too, now that that extreme step has been taken and we've seen the effects, what steps can we take forward to harness some of the benefit that we've seen during this time? Obviously, the answer is not keeping things the way they are. That's an economic disaster. We can't do that. But what what pieces can we pull out of this to make a positive impact going forward? I think it's easy for a lot of people to say, well, I'm just one person, and what effect can I have? But when we go back to those major contributors to greenhouse gas emissions, industry is the only one that we really don't have a direct impact on. But the other ones, electricity, transportation, agriculture, all of those we can immediately make an impact based upon our usage, where we source those things, where we choose to make our purchases. Yeah, and so that leads to, unfortunately, what I see is the next problem in that because of our reduction of use of transportation and other things that require oil, we have reduced the need for oil. We have now maxed out our storage for oil. And for the first time, we have seen oil go to a negative price, which means gas will become extremely affordable and potentially spur more use of those things because of the affordability. So now, unfortunately, I think we're going to see a battle between cheap oil, cheap gases, and potential programs like a cash for clunkers program. Yeah, and the other side of cheap oil is not directly related to transportation, but oil is the manufacturing ingredients. So many products that we use, 
particularly so many of our like single use and throwaway products. And so one of the things that's been kind of interesting right now is that with oil being so cheap, it's going to lead to cheaper production of certain goods, particularly some of the single use goods that so many of us are ordering at now on Amazon for our household, whether that's cleaning products, the bottles that hand sanitizer comes in um, that are generate other types of waste in our society right now, which I think as we're going to talk about later, the individual choices we make have a significant impact. Yes. And we will be diving into that topic more in tomorrow's episode. We'll be picking up right where we left off, talking about things that we as individuals can do to reduce our carbon footprint. And we'll be talking about the balance of getting our economy back running while being mindful of the environment and our look towards the future. As always, if you have thoughts on this, please reach out to us at hello at madeinkc.co. And you can find us on Twitter at madeinkc underscore. Happy Earth Day, everyone.